This is a reading from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Morning. Y'all can be seated. My name is Mark. I work for the Risen Collective. And my family and I attend church at Risen Northwest, but very excited to be back up here at Risen North to share the word with you all this morning. Let me start out our time together in the word with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus, and we do ask that you would bless the reading and the proclamation of your word. That as we see you, Jesus, in your word, we ask that you would allow us to receive the proclamation of the, of the kingdom, that we would receive this as life for us. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see you this morning, Jesus. Amen. Well, if I could sum up the life of Jesus as seen in the Gospels, I would say it like this. This isn't original to me, but I think it's helpful that Jesus came to declare and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Jesus came to declare and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel begins with this declaration that the angel comes to Mary and he declares the good news of the kingdom of God. And then earlier in our chapter for this morning in Luke chapter four, Jesus announces the kingdom of God in his first public sermon. When he is, it's time for him to minister in public, he pulls up Isaiah and he announces the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom. He quotes from Isaiah 61 verses one and two. And it's worth the review to read it again. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. It's good news to the poor. It's freedom for the captives. It's sight to the blind. It's the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus is done reading this, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So we learn that Isaiah was speaking about a specific time and a specific place in human history. And Jesus says, today, it's the day when he began his public ministry that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. This is Jesus's mission statement. This is why he came to earth, to set the captives free. 
And so after that, he's kind of rejected in Nazareth as he's too familiar to the people there. So then he moves on to Capernaum in Galilee and he does the same thing. On a Sabbath, he goes to a synagogue and he teaches the scriptures. He declares the kingdom of God. But here in Capernaum, unlike in Nazareth, the people understand that he has authority and they receive his teaching. And so then Jesus demonstrates his authority by casting out a demon. So it's one thing to say, hey, I've come to set the captives free. But it's another thing in the middle of your sermon to, to set a captive free by, by sending a demon out of a demon-possessed person. So as we're continuing to set the stage, just by way of introduction, as we see what Jesus is doing here in Luke chapter 4, I just have three initial observations that I think will help frame our passage for what Jesus has done and is doing. So before we turn the corner to our passage for this morning, three quick observations. First, Jesus anchors his teaching on God's initiative. So bringing the good news of the kingdom of God is God's initiative. We are the captives. We are the ones who are in prison. We are the ones who are poor, and God is the one who is coming to us, who has sent his son Jesus to us to bring good news to us. When Jesus quotes from Isaiah, he says, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh has anointed me. The spirit of Yahweh has sent me to bring freedom to the captives. As Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So we are the ones who receive the good news of the kingdom and God is the one who initiates that good news. We are weak, we are captive, we are poor. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. This is where we all were before we met Jesus. And God, on his own initiative, sent Jesus to set us free. That this is God's work, that we receive what God is doing for us. Second, the power of the kingdom of God comes from Jesus' words. When Jesus speaks, things happen. So I think when we see Jesus at work here in Luke 4, as we begin to see him as the, the way maker, the miracle worker, that we should think about God's original creation. That when God created at the beginning, he spoke things into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. And now we're supposed to see Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He does the same thing. When Jesus speaks, he speaks things into existence. When Jesus rebukes the, de rebukes the demon, it has to flee. And third, Jesus fulfills Old Testament expectation in a surprisingly joyful way. So when Isaiah says that God's servant is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's probably referring to the Old Testament law of the year of Jubilee. So the year of Jubilee was every 50 years, all of Israel was supposed to set their slaves free, set their indentured servants free as a reminder that they were once slaves in Egypt. And so this was the year where all the captives are set free, all the slaves are set free, and that's part of the the Old Testament law. But here, 
at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he says that this isn't just about physical slavery, this is about spiritual slavery. That the, the whole story of the Old Testament was really pointing to how Jesus would set the spiritual captives free from the prison of our sins. And here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, all of that expectation is fulfilled. So that's where we are in this, in this story. So Jesus has just preached a sermon and he's cast out a demon. And that would be a sermon that you would remember for a while. If in the middle of the sermon, the preacher cast out a demon. So he's declared and he's demonstrated the good news of the kingdom of God. And then he continues to do that in our passage for this morning. So as we turn to our passage, I think that it's made up of three parts, three parts of the story. So part one, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And part two, Jesus heals more diseases and casts out more demons. And then part three, Jesus goes out to a desolate place and is followed by the crowds. So that's how we're going to spend our time this morning is we're, we're just going to walk through each part of this passage and see what Jesus has to say to us. So part one, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So typically in Jewish culture, after the big synagogue meeting, you would go over to someone's house and have a big meal. Kind of like we do today, you have your church meeting and then you go out for Sunday lunch. And that's what Jesus does here. In verse 38, it says, and he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And presumably Simon Peter and his wife were in the synagogue and they just saw his authority. They saw him cast out the demon. And they know, Peter knows that his mother-in-law is sick. She has this high fever. And so they, they plead with him and they ask that he would demonstrate the kingdom of God to his mother-in-law as well. And Jesus responds by demonstrating the kingdom again. Listen to verse 39. It says, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Jesus can rebuke an unclean spirit and he can rebuke a fever. The dominion of his kingdom extends over demons and it extends over diseases. And I love the detail that Luke gives us as she's healed. It says she rose immediately and began to serve them. I think Luke includes this detail to show us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That Jesus heals us so that we can serve him. This woman's life was out of order. Her body wasn't working properly, but Jesus brought wholeness to her body. And he doesn't do that just as an end in itself, even though that's a good thing to do. He does that so that she serves him. And he makes you whole so that you can serve him because that's what you were made for. God made you to have the greatest delight and the greatest joy in serving him. And we're broken and we're in captivity if we refuse to serve him. So when he sets you free, when he sets us free, he sets us free to walk in that initial purpose where we are serving him. So Ephesians 2 is an amazing passage that I think as I've sat in Luke 4 and in Ephesians 2, I think there's a lot of parallels here 
where Ephesians 2 actually describes a lot of what Jesus is doing here. So I'm going to read a big chunk of Ephesians 2. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and just we'll let Paul kind of explain what Jesus is doing here, because I think he's going to help connect the dots between Peter's mother-in-law and how this is true for our lives as well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following in the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you see here that it's not just the demon-possessed people, it's not just Peter's mother-in-law, that we all are affected by by the demonic. Not that we're all demon-possessed by any means, but in our sins before we met Jesus, we were all following the course of this world. We were all following the course of the prince of the power of the air. But then Paul says one of the most glorious turns of phrases in all of the gospel, verse four, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's initiative. We're saved by grace through faith. This is God's doing. So we can't boast about what God, what what has happened to us. This is what God has done to us. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. We're his art project. And he creates us. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. God created you. He spoke new life into you, just like he spoke light and life into the world at the beginning of time. So you are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. Friends, God has prepared good works for you to walk in. And he makes you whole. He sets you free so that you can walk in those good works. So that's the first part of the story. And it's our story as well. That Jesus brings healing. He brings wholeness to Peter's mother-in-law. And by extension, we can see Jesus saying that same word to us, Be free so that we can get up and serve our King Jesus. Part two of the story, Jesus heals many. So Jesus continues to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom in the next scene. Verse 40 says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed him. So the sun had set, which meant the Sabbath was over. So the Jewish day ends at sunset. So now, during the Sabbath, they're kind of limited in their travel, but now everybody can flock to Jesus. 
They've heard of what he can do. And so everyone's bringing their sick and people who are demon possessed. They're bringing everyone who needs Jesus's touch and healing. They're bringing them to him. And he heals all of them. That's amazing. Jesus heals all of them. He heals all their various diseases. He casts out all the demons that are afflicting them. This is an amazing demonstration of the kingdom of God. This is who our God is. It reminds me of Psalm 103, verses two and three. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. That's what Jesus can do as he demonstrates the kingdom of God. Jesus has the power to heal all disease, all sickness, to cast out every unclean and evil spirit. And here we see him demonstrate that power. But then we get to perhaps see see a shocking part of the story. Maybe a turn in the story that we're not anticipating in verse 41. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now that's an interesting verse, isn't it? You're probably shocked by that verse for several reasons. First, the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. As we've been going through Luke, we see that this is not, not something that most people pick up on. We see it with Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon. We see the angel announcing it. But most people, like the people in Nazareth, they reject him. They can't get past the fact that he's Joseph the carpenter's son. And a lot of people just think that he's a miracle worker. He's, a, he's only a wonder worker and he's nothing beyond that. But the demons know that Jesus is the son of God. So it shows us that following Jesus is more than just having the right knowledge of who Jesus is. The amount of knowledge that you have about Jesus is rarely an indicator of how well you follow him. Knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of Jesus is never meant to be alone. Knowledge of Jesus must always be coupled with following Jesus, with surrendering everything to him, with receiving what he has to say, and then following him. And that's not what the demons do. They are not disciples of Jesus. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, you might say, you know what? There's a little bit more of that that I find familiar than I would like to admit. Where maybe you feel like you know who Jesus is and maybe that's what you thought it meant, it it means to be a Christian. Is yeah, Jesus is the son of God. But take this as a warning, friend, that it's not enough just to get Jesus's identity right. Although that's important, we also need to surrender everything and to follow him. So if that's you this morning, hear the warning of James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons could get a hundred on a theology test of the identity of Jesus, but they don't surrender to Jesus. And that's what discipleship means. Let him make you whole so that you can serve him. Don't just stay in a place of knowledge Move to a place of surrender. 
But the second thing that might strike you as odd about this section, about when Jesus silences the demons, is even the way the sentence works. It says, he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. That because word, you would think it would be because they were going to say false things about him or because they were going to do damage to his followers. But no, it's because they knew that he was the Christ. They knew that he was the Messiah. So we're left puzzled. Jesus came to declare and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Why doesn't he allow this knowledge spread even if it's by the demons? Well, here's the answer. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but the message that Jesus came to give is that he is the suffering Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 61 that he quoted at the beginning of his ministry, but he is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Yes, he came to bring freedom to the captives, but he sets the captive free by being taken captive by his enemies. Yes, he came to heal every disease, but it's by his stripes, by his wounds, that we are healed. The mystery of the kingdom of God is something that Jesus would teach his disciples for three years, and they still wouldn't fully get it. They had to see their king go to the cross and be crucified by the hands of men. They had to see the lion of the tribe of Judah become the lamb who was slain. And then they saw the empty tomb. They saw their slain lamb raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. And then they saw the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. And that's when they realized the the true identity of the kingdom of God. It's an upside down kingdom. The king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He declares his victory to the captives by laying down his life. He's crowned with thorns before he's crowned with glory. This is the mystery of the kingdom of God. And it's Jesus' mystery to proclaim Jesus doesn't trust the demons with the message of the kingdom of God. He wants to be the one to reveal the mystery of the kingdom of God. He wants to be the one who silences the demons who might know his identity, but they don't know how to steward the message well. So as we listen to Jesus, we hear him teach about the kingdom, that yes, the kingdom is an upside down kingdom, And the kingdom of God is also an already but not yet kingdom. The kingdom of God has come in the first coming in the public ministry of Jesus, but it has not yet fully come in the consummation of his kingdom. So you all know I'm always good for a good World War II analogy. And theologians describe this dynamic of the kingdom as the difference between D-Day and V-Day. So the first coming is like D-Day, which if you've studied World War II, that's when the Allies storm Normandy Beach and they get to the stronghold and they know because they got that stronghold, the war was going to be won. But the war wasn't over yet, but the tide had turned, the momentum had shifted. So Jesus' first coming is like D-Day, 
But his second coming is like V-Day, when the war was finally won. So there's lots of battles that we still need to fight in between, but we're fighting a battle that has already been won. That's what the kingdom was like when Jesus declared his kingdom at his first coming. That Jesus hadn't returned yet to consummate his kingdom, but his kingdom has been inaugurated. It's an already but not yet kingdom. And here's what this means for us. What do you do when you're sick? What do you do when a loved one is sick and you pray for them and they don't get better? What do you do when you read Luke chapter four and you see Jesus heals all diseases and then you go and pray for someone and nothing happens? Is Jesus still alive? Yes. Is he still on his throne? Yes. Does he still heal people? Yes. Will people be healed every time we pray for them? No. That's what it means to live in the already but not yet kingdom of God. Here's how this works. So don't lose hope. If you're a Christian, God will heal all your diseases. He will be faithful to your promise. Maybe he'll heal them now when we pray for you. The Bible still says if you're sick, Go to the elders, let them anoint you with oil. Go to your, your friends, let them pray for you. That's something that we still can do. So he might heal you now, or he might heal you in the life to come. But he's gonna do one or the other. So we know that Jesus is gonna be true to his promise, that he will heal all your diseases, either in this life, in an inaugurated sense, or for sure in the next life in the consummated sense. He will one day heal all your diseases. As scholar D.A. Carson likes to say, there's nothing wrong with me that a good resurrection won't fix. That's what Jesus will do for us. And here's what this means for us practically. So we need to allow Jesus to be the one who tells us what it means that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah. Jesus won't allow the demons to be the one to tell people about his identity. Jesus wants to be the one to deliver that message. And do you know what? There's still demons who want to deliver that message to you today. They want to take it, they want to twist it and contort it and make you not trust in God anymore because they want to try to give you the message. But just like Jesus, we need to let him be the one to tell us what it means that he's the son of God. Let Jesus be the one to tell us what it means that he's the Messiah. Luke has already shown us what the devil wants to say. Back in Luke 4, 9 through 10, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Do you know that Satan has a theology? Satan's theology is this. If you follow God, you should never suffer. And therefore, Satan wants to say, if you suffer, God is a liar. That's what he wants to tell you. If you let the demons reveal Jesus' identity to you. If you let the world reveal Jesus' identity to you. But we need to hear from Jesus himself about what it means that he is the Messiah. Listen to what Jesus will say a few chapters later in Luke chapter 9, 24. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It took them over three years, but the disciples finally learned from Jesus what it really means that he's the son of God. It means that Jesus would rule and reign as the Messiah as he lays down his life. It's the slain lamb who sits on the throne. Hear the invitation to see Jesus on the cross, to let the slain lamb teach us what it means to follow in his ways. In the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, Luke tells us about these same disciples who are beaten for the cause of Christ. And then in Acts 5, 41, he tells us, then they left the presence of the council, the people who had just beaten them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For the name. They understand it. They get what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that even when you suffer, even when you're beaten, you can rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. If we're going to let Jesus define his kingdom, then we have to understand how suffering fits into discipleship. God uses suffering in a thousand ways. I want to highlight just one of them this morning. And to do that, I want to hear from C.S. Lewis, who has taught me a lot about how suffering fits into the kingdom of God. Lewis says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God can use suffering to rouse us from our slumber and to shape us into more of who Jesus is, into the image of Jesus. So C.S. Lewis gives another example in his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's an interesting book. If you haven't read it, I'd, I'd encourage you to read it. But it's an interesting premise because Lewis, the great Christian apologist, writes from the voice of a senior demon training a young demon how to tempt Christians. So it's really insightful, insightful, but you have to know who the voice is that you're hearing from. So in the context of the story, World War II has just broken out, and the young demon is excited. He's like, yes, war, we love violence, this is good for our cause. And the mature demon says, not so fast. Don't think that war is actually always good for us demons. And then he continues, he says, Consider, too, what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. So undesirable to the demons. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed, and to which they go, if they are at all of the enemy's party, prepared. How much better for us, how much better for the demons, if all humans died in costly nursing homes, amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest, lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. When we think things are going well, it's so easy to forget God. So God, in his mercy, allows us to experience suffering so that when we look to God, we're shaped by him. All it takes is a couple hours of a real toothache, 
and you're thinking about eternity real quick, right? God shouts to us in our pain. He wakes us up from our slumber and speaks to us and shapes us as disciples of Jesus as we experience pain and suffering. I fear that in our comfortable suburban lives, we're prone to forget God. But Jesus wants to be the one who tells us what it means that he is the son of God. He came to lay down his life, to be nailed to that cross. And in your pain, in your suffering, in your grief, listen to Jesus and let him do his good work in you today. So we've seen Jesus bring wholeness to Peter's mother-in-law and out of her wholeness, she serves him. And we've also seen Jesus silence the demons because he wants to be the one to teach us what it means that he is the son of God so that even in our brokenness, even in our suffering and our pain, we can learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And finally, we get to part three. Jesus goes to a desolate place and announces his purpose. So let's look at verses 42 and 43 together. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So I have two main observations from this section. First, and this one's just kind of an aside, just a little detail. I don't think we should overlook the fact that Jesus goes to a desolate place. He's preached a sermon. He's had a meal with friends. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons long after sundown. He's exhausted. And we shouldn't let this fact slip by us, that when God became human, he willingly took on the limits of humanity. After a long day, Jesus knows his limits. He needs to go to a desolate place to refresh his body and his soul. And we're going to see throughout the, the Gospel of Luke that Jesus does this over and over again. He goes to a desolate place to pray, to refresh his body and his soul. If Jesus, the Son of God, recognizes his limits, how much more should you and I? But our society grates against this in this world of attention capital. Everyone in this world would look at this and say, Jesus, you've got the momentum. You've got the attention. You've got to capitalize. You've got to keep on going. But he takes a moment to go to a desolate place to pray. Our society says that it's bad when you get tired. And so we push and we push and we push and we keep on grabbing those five-hour energy drinks at the checkout line. We push ourselves to the limit and beyond, thinking that our goal in life is to break through our limitations. What if our goal in life was not to break through our limitations, but to embrace them and to trust in God as our sufficiency? I think Jesus can teach us that here as he goes to a desolate place. Secondly, Jesus goes off to this desolate place and he's followed by the crowd. So he doesn't get much of a break here. The crowd sees him probably as a mere miracle worker at this point. They don't yet know the, the meaning of the kingdom, nor do they know his purpose to bring the good news of the kingdom to the other towns. 
And I think this is another false impulse that we struggle with. That there's times when we encounter Jesus and we're in awe of him, but we just want to keep Jesus for ourselves. The crowds don't want to let Jesus leave. They want to keep him there. We see this in other places in the gospel as well, like in the event of the transfiguration. This is also in Luke 9, so we'll be there in like three years once we get to Luke chapter 9. But Jesus transfigures and his glorified self pops through the physical world and he's shining like the sun and Moses and Elijah are with him. And then Peter says what we often say, first thing that comes out of our mouth, which ends up being pretty stupid. He says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke has to give us this little detail. Peter didn't know what he was saying. Like he's, he's out of his mind here. Peter has this impulse. This is really good. Let's just build some tents and let's just all stay here like Israel did in the wilderness. We'll just camp out here for a while. But then a cloud overshadows them. And a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. There's times when we get too comfortable and we just want to stay where we are. But Jesus is on the move. We need to listen to how Jesus declares the kingdom. Jesus is on mission to take the good news of the kingdom, not just to Capernaum, but to the surrounding towns as well. So yes, sometimes we try to push ourselves to the limit and we need to learn to go to a quiet place and pray. But there's other times when we need to get out of our comfort zones and follow Jesus to where he's taking us next. Jesus is on mission. This is not a guilt trip. This is an invitation to join Jesus in on his mission. Jesus is bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to the woodlands, to Cyprus, to Papua New Guinea, and everywhere in between. And he's inviting you to join with him on that mission. This is what it means to receive the message of the kingdom of God, to see Jesus as the son of God. It means to see Jesus and to be set free, and to be healed by him, to be enabled to serve him. It's to follow Jesus even in our suffering. And it means to see Jesus on mission and to join him in that mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have poured out your spirit on us and your spirit lives within us. The spirit of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So as we've heard how Jesus has announced his kingdom, has inaugurated his kingdom, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be disciples of you, Jesus, to seek after you and to see what you're doing and to listen to you and go out on mission with you, to follow you on mission and to receive your teaching, even in our suffering, even in the tension of the already and not yet, Lord, I pray that you would give us hope and help to allow you to, to show us how we can hear from you in our suffering, in our pain. Would you make us a church that serves you because of how you have made us alive? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.